Hello and welcome to the St. Emlyn's podcast. I'm Simon Carley and today we're going to do something a little bit different, but very much related to the current COVID-19 stroke coronavirus stroke SARS-CoV-2 outbreak. And that's to get together with a couple of experts in their field to talk about aspects of well-being and support and immunology and nutrition and exercise and sleep and a whole range of things which we think are really important when we think about how we are going to get ourselves and our colleagues through the next few months. So I'm going to start off by getting them to introduce themselves. I've got two people on the podcast with us today, which is a bit unusual for us, so bear with us on the editing. But guys, do you want to introduce yourself? John, John, you go first. Hi, Simon. I'm John Rogers. I'm a consultant in sport and exercise medicine in Manchester. And I um, have, over the last sort of 12 to 14 years of my career, worked a lot with endurance athletes um, in British athletics and at British triathlon. And we see a lot of respiratory tract infections in the athletic population that we look after. It's, it's probably the biggest time loss factor, medical factor that we see. And uh, as a result of that, there's been a lot of scientific intelligence and a lot of resource has been put into prevention of respiratory tract infections during my career. And I've worked with uh, my colleague Nathan Lewis uh, over the last uh, 12 years, in, and we've seen a lot of athletes who've had problems with fatigue and overreaching because of the significant volumes and intensities of training uh, and the stress, uh, both physical and psychological stress that comes with competing at Olympic Games and in very high pressure situations. And Nathan? Hi, Simon. Yes. So um, I started out uh, clinically and initially trained as a dietitian. Um, and when I actually ended up leaving uh, the NHS, I was working in intensive care, supporting athletes and prescribing nutrition to patients in that setting. I subsequently went on to do a PhD in exploring fatigue um, and oxidative stress in, in elite endurance athletes. And I've worked for the English Institute of Sport as a nutrition scientist and as a, a nutritionist for the last sort of 15 years. So across four Olympic cycles, if you like. I also work for a company called Orico, which sort of specializes in recovery solutions and biomarkers for elite athletes around the world. So my day job now is very much focused on the elite athlete. So you guys are both experts in your field. I think, you know, there's no danger in us ever doubting the credibility here. And it's fantastic to have guys like you just so local. I think that's one of the things I've learned a little bit over the, the past few weeks with the COVID-19 outbreak is we're, we're breaking down walls. We're speaking to different people that we didn't speak before, and we're learning huge amounts from each other. And that's kind of what I want to get out of today. Because as we sit at the moment here in Verchester, we're on the upswing of the curve of cases that are coming through, and we're seeing some really quite terrifying stuff coming through the doors. And we also have a workforce who are going to have potentially, I think probably, I think certainly, one of the toughest times of their careers over the next few months. They're stressed, they're anxious, they're worried, but they're also up for it. They're also you know, ready and prepared and they want to be as good as they possibly can be. And we also need to flatten the two curves. I talked about this in one of the other podcasts, but there's a curve of general population infections. We need to flatten that to keep under NHS resources. But we also need to flatten the curve of healthcare worker infections. Because if we all go off sick at the same time, We've got a major problem because there'll be nobody to look after the patients who will be us. So anything that we can do to support our staff to stay healthy, to recover quickly, I think is really important. And that's why I'm really delighted that you guys have come along today. So 
We always take an evidence-based approach in St. Emelins, and I know that you've got some ideas and some thoughts and some papers and some evidence to talk to us about today. So who wants to kick off? Where do you want to start with how we can keep ourselves at tip-top condition during these difficult few months? If I start, Nathan, with some of the background sort of lifestyle factors, and then maybe if you pick up on the nutritional side of things, is that okay? Sounds good, John. Yeah. Great. Like I think the three big areas, Simon, for me, where there's been a lot of research in the sporting population are around sleep, stress and exercise. And uh, I was on a conference call on Friday uh, with Nathan, with various sports science people in North America and in the UK. And on the call, one of the people presenting along with Nathan was Ricky Simpson, who's an exercise immunology researcher in Houston. And Ricky's research has, has focused a lot on exercise and and the pros and cons of exercise on the immune system. And he works with NASA and works with astronauts in terms of optimizing their immune health. Also works with cancer patients and with uh, with sports as well. And some of the sort of key papers on on reducing respiratory tract infections, a massive time loss illness and optimizing our innate and acquired immune response are around the benefits of sleep. And elite and professional sports has invested very heavily in this area over the last three to five years. And we aim for at least seven hours of sleep a night. That's the general advice. And to look at sleep hygiene, so look at how you're using caffeine, perhaps in the afternoon or evening, trying to minimize that uh, because caffeine has a long half-life, trying to minimize screen time in the evening because we know that that can adversely affect your sleep. Thinking around, you know, your bedroom, is it dark enough? Is it warm? Is it comfortable? And we know that good quality sleep can have a really beneficial effect on your immune system. So, you know, in in the months ahead for our frontline staff, uh, as you said, you know, first rule of first aid is don't become a casualty yourself. You've got to look after yourself and we don't want people burning out, you know, and it's a marathon, not a sprint. So, uh, you know, try to look after yourself uh, as well as you can and uh, make sure you're recovering and you've, you've downtime as well so that you're not getting excessively stressed. Stress is the other big area. So we know stress has an effect uh, uh, very closely related to the immune system. It has an effect on from a hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, uh, but also in terms of sympathetic nervous system that the effect and the effects that has on the adrenal medulla catecholamines uh, have on your immune function. And we know that uh, that managing stress appropriately can enhance immune health. Uh, but times when people are, are very stressed, which is inevitable over the months ahead, can can really increase your risk of infection and, and becoming ill. And so thinking about what are your strategies to try and minimize stress, and that might be using exercise, it might be using meditation. And, you know, there's a lot of good resources out there around mindfulness and different apps and things that you can you can access for that. I use an app called Calm, which is find really helpful for meditation. Exercise, we know, has a has lots of beneficial effects uh, for our physical and psychological health. And uh, the general, the CMO guidelines uh, for health and well-being are that we should all be doing 150 minutes per week of moderate intensity exercise or 75 minutes of higher intensity, more vigorous exercise and strength-based training on two days per week. So 
we know that excessive exercise can sometimes stress the immune system, but we're, we're talking about, you know, doing you know, maybe 30 to 60 minutes of exercise a day, five days a week. You know, if you're doing that, you'll be keeping yourself fit and healthy, keeping your musculoskeletal system healthy, keeping your cardiorespiratory system healthy. And, you know, that, that should help you sleep more effectively. It should help you manage your stress. And um, so there are lots of benefits from doing regular exercise at this time as well. So a couple of things I want to sort of ask you about there, if that's okay. So there's a great book which you probably read called Why We Sleep by, I think it's Matthew Elton, we reviewed it on the blog. Yes. And there's some amazing advice in there about sleep that touches on many of the things that you said. Of course, a lot of our workers um, work shifts, which is a problem because that does disrupt your sleep patterns. But there are ways to mitigate um, against that. And I, I might ask you about a couple in a second. What I do remember from the book is it's a great book, but and I should remember more. Caffeine, you, you mentioned hospitals seem to run on caffeine, but there is pretty good evidence that having caffeine in the hours before you sleep, and I think Matthew Elton would say if you're on a normal sleep pattern after lunchtime, it's not a great idea, can really disrupt your sleep patterns. And also alcohol, um, which unfortunately is a, a crux for many people at times of stress, that also disrupts your sleep pattern. And I think he said that you should stop drinking at about 11 o'clock in the morning. That wasn't a real suggestion, folks. But, you know, if you're going to start drinking, start when you wake up and then finish. No, don't do that. But alcohol, caffeine, sleep disruption, these are stresses that because of the nature of the work that we do, do actually affect people, but they are changeable and they're adjustable. Absolutely. Yeah. And I've read that book by Matthew Walker as well, a fantastic piece of work. And, and you know, he's obviously one of the, me, the main researchers and he's advised a lot of professional sports on how to get their sleep strategy together. And from what I recall from the book was around, you know, caffeine has a long half-life, you know, 12 hours or so. And even decaf tea and coffee has, you know, maybe 30% caffeine in it. And that can significantly impact on your quality of sleep and your quantity of sleep. And as you say, alcohol, yes, absolutely can, can adversely affect the, it can help you get to sleep quickly, but it, it adversely affects your quality of sleep. And this, sleep is one of the key factors at optimizing your immune health. And um, so whatever you can do, and I appreciate the challenges with shift work and, uh, and light and dark, you know, and trying to sleep during the day can be challenging. But whatever you can do, and whatever sort of personal things that you've picked up over the years to help you with that, um, now is a really good time to make sure you're practicing the best sleep hygiene that you possibly can. Couldn't agree more. So things like that people can do very quickly, sleep masks um, to as a, a, an alternative to blackout curtains, ear defenders or earplugs that can be used if you can tolerate them for a period of time. Having a regular routine when you come home from a shift before you go into bed to make sure that your body is getting used to it. You said about decreasing screen time before you go to sleep. Absolutely. There's some controversy, I think, about whether or not taking the blue light out of screens, which you can do on pretty much every device these days. They've got a, a way of taking the blue light out of the screen as you go towards bedtime or towards sleep time. A bit of controversy yeah. about that, whether, whether it works or not. But, you know, these are things that, that can be done. And I think to use a sporting analogy, these are all I think these are all sort of little marginal gains type elements that are going to potentially move people towards a, a better a better routine. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, there's so much focus, I think, at the moment on avoidance of exposure, you know, whether it's PPE, isolation, you know, and hand hygiene, which are all incredibly important. But the other side of the of the coin, so to speak, is how do we help our own uh, immune defense to cope with, um, you know, the inevitable exposure that we may come up against over the months ahead. And uh, the other one I wanted to pick up on is the mindfulness yoga, etc. There's an offer 
from a company called 10%, which I think you can Google, that if you put in an NHS code, you can get that free for about six months at the moment, which is a mindfulness app. Um, I've also used things like Headspace in the past. I've got a brilliant yoga teacher. We go twice a week. Um, ordinarily, they're now doing their classes online. So, and I know that some what would be described as, you know, pretty roughy tufty resuscitationists out there who are the, the cutting edge of, of what we do as a specialty, who work in extremely difficult circumstances. And they are some of the the biggest proponents of that kind of um, periods of time, relaxation techniques, mindfulness, yoga. It's not something we should be afraid of. It's something which potentially, if it works for you, is worth a try. Yeah, definitely. And certainly we, we've seen a lot of engagement in the athletic population um, over recent years in, in these type of tools. Headspace is one of the, the key apps that we use with athletes. And it's been a lot more focus on mental health in athletes because of the, the stresses, you know, with competition and the you know long haul travel and the effects that, that can have on, on sleep and everything else. And so we, we really promote um, the use of those apps and meditation with the, the populations that we work with as well. Yeah, and of course, we're not endorsing any particular app here. These are just examples. No, I'm certainly not getting paid by anybody to endorse anything at the moment. But there are free and paid versions of all of these things out there. And you can have a look and find something that suits yourself. Absolutely. I, one of the other things, Simon, just to add in around uh, hydration and oral health can be particularly important as well to uh, optimise your immune health. And one of the things that we do with athletes who are doing long haul flights is advise them around drinking and, and staying well hydrated and chewing gum to uh, increase salivary flow rates and improve their mucosal health. And uh, we know that salivary IgA can be an important part of your oral immune health. And, you know, that can have relevance to, you know, initial exposure and how you defend yourself. Excellent. So quite a lot of tips there. And again, I, I quite like the idea of these are things which are achievable and which are pretty universally achievable. So have a think about your routines, have a think about your lifestyle, having a think about what you're doing and whether you can modulate any of that to do the things that John suggests. Nathan, you, you're, you've got more of an approach and an idea around the nutrition side of things, which is an area which is often very controversial, but there is quite a lot of evidence out there. You sent me a whole bunch of papers, including Cochrane Reviews out there. There's a lot of science behind this. And I think that's something I want to push out to people is that we're not just making this up. It's, this is, no, honestly, there's, um, there is actually a whole world of science out there. And I think going back to what I said is this is a great opportunity for us to go and speak to other specialties and to speak to experts in their field and see what we can share between the, the traditional silos in medicine. So, so Nathan, you've got quite a few ideas that you sent across to me. Yeah, no, absolutely, Simon. You know, sports nutrition, sports science, you know, is a discipline. There's a, a large number of academics out there that do some fantastic work producing some great science. And I think if we move to the science, which is of the highest levels of evidence, if we look at sort of meta-analyses and Cochrane reviews, you know, that can tell us a lot about, you know, where we may be able to gain the most benefit uh, or see the most impact on our, well, in, in the case of me, um, athletes, and you know, my demographic. So certainly, I mean, I think to sort of give some punchy headlines, vitamin C, everyone will be familiar with sort of Linus Pauling's stance on this in the 1970s and his work. But, you know, the Cochrane review that was carried out a number of years ago, they looked at five studies in heavy exercises and showed a 50% decrease in upper respiratory tract infections in the group taking vitamin C. And the dose they were taking was sort of in the region of about 250 milligrams up to a gram a day. So certainly a gram a day you would struggle to achieve through diet, but 200, 250 milligrams is possible 
through um, consuming lots of fruits and vegetables and drinking various fruit orientated drinks. And in fact, if I, if I build on that point, there's, there was a meta-analysis that was done fairly recently looking at a particular type of sort of chemical found within fruits and vegetables, so polyphenols, and a specific focus on flavonoids. So they're found in a, a variety of different sort of fruits and vegetables, but also in things like tea and, uh, and coffee, actually, as well. And I guess we're all quite familiar with red wine. Not that I'm advocating that, but uh, they were able to demonstrate across a number of trials that there was uh, a 30% reduction in the incidence of URTI in these studies in athletes. I hasten to add, you know, most of the research that I will focus on will be athlete focused. So, you know, really emphasizing the importance of um, of fruits and vegetables. And some of the research that we've carried out in athletes, you know, John touched upon it earlier in the introduction, we've sort of focused around the fatigued athlete as well and having a look at see if we can explain why some athletes develop uh, significant fatigue and, and struggle to train and recover. And with that, there's quite a lot of psychological symptoms as well. And one thing that our work has uncovered over the years is that these athletes that are displaying more fatigue and struggling to recover and cope with stress and the demands of uh, their life and their sport, they have much lower levels of components of fruits and vegetables, essentially various different carotenoids in their blood work. And carotenoids are sort of uh, very useful biomarkers really for having a handle on one's fruit and vegetable intake because there's a lot of challenges with you know, food diaries and, and trying to uh, analyze someone's diet that way, a lot of biases. So we use the blood work to, to give us more quantitative data to draw more more firm conclusions so you know practically what i would say you know try and consume seven to ten serves of fruits and vegetables a day you know if that's particularly difficult given long shifts and the hours that you may be operating you know can you grab soups and smoothies and do things uh, that way you know those frontline health workers that are you know putting all their energy into supporting sick patients please don't forget about themselves i think it's really important they find some time beginning of the day the middle of the day and the end of the day to feed themselves and feed themselves with some with some quality nutrition so that that's fascinating i mean there's a couple of things in there already which sort of blow my mind really the the first is that you've got this idea that you can test people on blood work about what they've been eating i just pings into my head as you know I, I did tell my mother that i ate my broccoli but now there's a blood test for that that's just insane um but it's really you know it demonstrates that this is in science the seven to ten portions of course is um, higher than most people would be recommended through normal governmental type advice which i think is still five portions a day and quite difficult to get in what, what are you feeling around um supplements to get to that level yeah no that's that's, uh, that's a good point well, there's some interesting research done. Um, certainly, I can think of one RCT in the military, another one done in stress law students, where they actually gave them uh, a sort of concentrated powder, what you might refer to as a sort of green supplement, which has become very popular of late in the athletic world, which is essentially lots of different vegetables and herbs um, and some fruits in a sort of dehydrated format, a powder that can just be added to a recovery drink, added to a smoothie, but as a simple means of sort of boosting one intake and getting a lot of those compounds that are those phytonutrients that are found in fruits and vegetables that you're not going to get from taking a multivitamin or mineral for example so you know if you're someone that struggles on that front and you get to the shops and there's no fresh fruit and vegetables available you know a greens powder may be a very simple strategy and there is some evidence um, underpinning that and the other one which i've got to mention um, which you won't know about but i've got to mention of this podcast is the issue around vitamin c Vitamin C has been advocated of late as a potential 
incredible cure together with uh, thiamine and with hydrocortisone for patients with sepsis. And there's a big controversy that's been running in, in critical care around this for the last couple of years. Recently, there's an RCT published that showed it didn't have an effect. But it's important for, for me to mention to people who will be aware of that, that this is a completely different question. The other studies are in patients who've got septic shock in intensive care established. And what we're talking about here today is almost prevention and decreasing the frequency and the intensity. So just people who are listening, this is the same substance, completely different question. Um, and, that's, and that's a good point. I mean, I think from, from my reading, you know, vitamin C deficiency substantially increases your, you know, your risk of picking up a, an upper respiratory tract infection. It will influence the, the severity and the duration of that infection as well. And, you know, first and foremost, we need to be avoiding any nutritional de- deficiencies because if we're deficient in a particular nutrient, it will compromise uh, different physiological systems and certainly the immune system. And whether that's we're looking at the innate or the acquired immune system, you know, those both will suffer from insufficient uh, nutrition or poor nutrition in that respect. There's probably two other areas I'd touch upon, Simon, just to, with the weight of evidence. Um, first would be sort of probiotics. So there is a Cochrane review of 12 studies showing a 50% decrease in uh, incidence of upper respiratory uh, illness. And I think that also showed us a shortening as, as well in terms of the duration of that illness. I would very much here go with the drinks off the shelf. There's a professor at UCL who's done some work looking at um, how the bacteria may survive the stomach and that, that transit and then sort of populate in the large bowel and interact with our uh, gut associated sort of lymphoid tissue. So for me, it would be, you know, using things like Actimil and Yakult. And there is research there as well was showing favorable antibody responses to, to vaccinations with a period of probiotic supplementation through the drink. So, you know, it can influence how the body responds and fights um, an infection. If we get to the point of vaccination, you know, maybe probiotics might be a way to enhance that in vaccination response. And the other area I touch upon is is vitamin D, which is probably the area that I imagine many of your listeners will probably be most familiar with. And, and you know, if we're if we assume that someone hasn't taken a vitamin D supplement across the winter and hasn't had a, a nice summer, a nice winter holiday in the sunshine in the southern hemisphere, then it's more than likely they will be very low to deficient in vitamin D at this particular juncture. And indeed, there's a uh, you know a large body of research showing a relationship with our blood vitamin D levels and how our immune function operates and, and our risk of illness. So I think you know if you can get out, we can now start to synthesize vitamin D in our skin from UV so one can get out and get sort of 10 15 20 minutes in the sunshine arms face certainly um, we can start to synthesize some vitamin d um, but it probably would be advisable to perhaps take a supplement at this point in time if you're you know on the front line and you haven't been taking something across the winter because that is going to influence your risk uh, of illness and, and one of the vitamin d sort of pivotal roles seems to be sort of these antimicrobial peptides that reside within our sort of salivary secretions and lung and offer that kind of first line of defense as well as influencing how the, the immune system sort of once the infection has has uh, got into the system how the immune system may fight that so i, I see a lot of importance attached to vitamin d as well so we don't really tell people where Verchester is, but it's not a million miles away from Manchester in north of England. We don't see that big yellow thing in the sky very often, even in the summer. So, yeah. And uh, I used to work with a, a bone specialist in, in Manchester, a pediatric uh, metabolic bone professor. And he was of quite of the opinion that certainly in these northern climes, most people will be proportionally vitamin D deficient over the winter. So, you know, completely backing up what you said and not as easy to get through diet. Um, vitamin D, so supplements potentially. 
I think so, yeah. You know, you'd be lucky to get, you know, sort of 200 international units through your diet. You know, maybe if you're eating sort of eggs and some sort of fortified um, margarine and some butter and milk, then you'll have a little bit in your diet, uh, red meat as well. But ultimately, we do need to supplement, yes, absolutely. And the kind of gui- guidance sort of operates between sort of 1,000 international units a day all the way up to 4,000 international units if you're actually deficient. Um, the way we work in our world at the Elite Sport is we will measure vitamin D levels in our athletes and, and target the supplementation based on the uh, athlete's health injury history and in turn their underlying blood work which you know may be difficult to get a vitamin d tested done at this juncture but they're not particularly costly no we've actually stopped doing them i think um, because of pressure on the labs oddly enough a memo fairly recently so we're not going to get a test fairly soon but we can probably make some assumptions john you're going to come in there yeah just to say we uh, spend a lot of time checking vitamin d levels in the athletic population so we we do it routinely twice a year in november and april uh, because as you say you know we don't get a lot of sun exposure in the uk and in, particularly in darker skinned athletes we see a higher prevalence of vitamin d deficiency so it's in the order of you know well over 50 percent of people are deficient and, and and we have supplement strategies which we use to to supplement particularly through the winter months i would say in my career and we've been supplementing typically between 2,000 and 4,000 units of, of vitamin d3 through the winter months i have not yet seen anybody with vitamin d toxicity and and you know, we've given high doses to you know hundreds and hundreds of athletes and so i think in terms of risks versus benefits you know if you've not had any vitamin d supplementation through the winter and you've not had much sun exposure either um i think at this point in time you know i would highly recommend taking probably between 2000 and 4000 units of vitamin d3 daily um over the next couple of months to help optimize your immune response uh, because i think the risk of harm is extremely low okay so there's an awful lot there um for us to take in and again i don't think there's anything there which is particularly complicated or beyond the realms of possibility for most if not all people who be listening to the podcast guys do you have any other sort of aspects or anything that we've missed as we've gone along that you want to, to mention um, I think Nathan did you want to uh, talk about omega-3 like I think that's a really interesting area as well I think yeah I mean I think omega-3 comes back to sort of importance of having an appropriate balance and ensuring that you've got the you know the right sort of spectrum of nutrients in the diet with referring to omega-3 we're talking to omega-3 fatty acids so certain types of fatty acids that are found really in a, in a very small number of food groups so primarily certainly the the very long chain omega-3 polyunsaturated facets of which epa and, and dha are the, are the two in focus so those we primarily get through the diet through through eating fish and they play a really important role in the inflammatory response. So a number of the inflammatory mediators are derived from, from EPA. And indeed, of late, the research has told us that both EPA and DHA play a role in resolving inflammation. So they produce uh, different compounds that sort of come under the header of protectins and resolvins. So, you know, very much as the name states, they're involved in, in ensuring that inflammatory response is able to sort of settle down. So we have a pro-inflammatory response and we have an, an appropriate anti-inflammatory response. And sort of trying to ensure that's uh, appropriate is important, particularly in things progress to and get complicated and we start talking about things like cytokine storm and and a, and a dysfunctional immune system that's quite significant from a clinical perspective i'm sure you'll agree simon so 
for me, I'd like to see people ensuring that they're consuming some fish in their diet. If they don't, then it's definitely pertinent to pop down the shop and, and consume a fish oil supplement that contains EPA um, and DHA. And if you're a vegan, then you won't get any of that in your diet. But you can find certain if you're more comfortable eating fish, then there are algae supplements out there that are a source of DHA, certainly. Right. Okay. So I'm going to try and bring this to an a conclusion, if that's okay. I think it's probably worth us talking about the evidence that we've got here is is very typical of what we're experiencing with the whole of coronavirus and whole of COVID-19, in that we're at this very early stage of a new disease. And we're trying to draw conclusions and trying to draw advice from studies which haven't actually been done on patients who've got coronavirus. And that's not a criticism in any way, shape or form. That is just the reality of where we are now, both in terms of this and in terms of therapeutics, and in fact, in terms of diagnostics as well. It's a really interesting and fascinating time to be involved in science. And I think you know, what we're talking about from, from you two is optimising how we prepare ourselves for the, the days and months ahead. And it is, to some extent, we're taking evidence from one group of people and we're trying to apply it to another. But for many of our healthcare workers who are young, fit, healthy, as most of our, our junior clinicians are, maybe not people like myself, it's not an entirely unreasonable leap. Would you, would you agree with that? Absolutely, Simon. You know, I think the principles uh, apply, you know, to the human body and human physiology and um, what, you know, the, the stresses, physical and psychological stresses that the athletic population go through uh, matches, you know, some of the stresses that, that we all have in our day-to-day -day lives. And, and I think the principles are um, transferable and, uh, and I, I think it is a reasonable uh, thing to extrapolate some of the large body of evidence that we see in the athletic population and in this scenario as you say where the where the, the research has not yet been done to use this information and hopefully give yourself the best fighting chance of staying fit and healthy over the next few months. Yeah I think um, well said uh, John and Simon yeah I, I completely agree there is a there's a large body of research with nutrition on the immune function and, and reducing risk of sort of common cold and, and sort of bacterial and viral infections and i think you know if we can extrapolate that to our frontline workers and and help them in some way knowing that there is very little risk of doing harm but there's potential for doing an awful lot of benefit supporting their uh, uh, mental and physical well-being at this difficult time i think yeah i think it's important we we pass on what we know as we are doing and give them the confidence that there's a good body of scientific evidence underpinning um, what we're sharing with them fantastic so i'm going to try and get this up onto the podcast fairly soon um hopefully within the next few days and certainly within the next few weeks because i think people need to know about it now before the big peak hits we'll put some notes up on the blog so people can hopefully follow some of the links and i'll put the papers that you sent me across onto there together with some other links and references if you've got anything else that you want to send me across i can put those up as well but i just wanted to thank you both for your time and for your efforts and for all the work you've done in the past to get us to this stage that can hopefully help both patients and in particular the staff so that we can flatten the curve, flatten both curves, the population curve and flatten the curve of healthcare worker infections as well so that we've got enough people to treat our patients who might be us. And that's kind of important. Thank you so much, John. Thank you so much, Nathan. Nathan.